Hello, and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing the movie Aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. I'm Tasha Robinson, and today we're discussing Minute Number 17, which begins with Ripley crying on the edge of her bed and ends with Ripley telling Burke that she is in. And yes, that's Tasha Robinson back again, co-hosting with me all week. Thank you, Tasha, for coming back. Absolutely. Always a fun time. Yeah. And of course, we have our guest, Kwame Opum, back with us again today. Thanks for coming back. Always good to be here. All right. Well, should we just dive right in? Absolutely. Definitely. All right. So here we are, minute 17. Ripley has just awoken from this nightmare that we were talking about in the last minute. One thing that I was thinking about, we were talking about it in that last minute yesterday, but I kind of held it off for this minute, was this idea that we have to be building towards a reason for Ripley to actually make this decision, to actually heed this call to go. Because for me, it's hard to believe. I can't imagine. I'm more of the Lambert, I guess, type, where not only would I be a little bit deeply concerned, I'd be deeply concerned about going to space in the first place, but if I had actually seen what what Ripley saw in Alien, there's no way in hell I'm going back, right? So if you're the filmmaker, if you're James Cameron, and you're writing this movie, isn't that the mindset you have to assume the audience would have for Ripley? that you're going to have to convince them that she is actually going to go back. Well, it's kind of the Jurassic Park problem, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, you everything fell apart, you nearly died, come back. <laughs> and the answer to that is no. And then, you know, then, then the pressure starts. Then it's, well, dump truck full of money or amazing opportunity. Or in this case, you get your job back or possibly you get your mind back. You know, there are a lot of different things that could be going on here. And again, one of the things I like about this movie is that we don't explain it. You know, we see her in this this moment of pain and vulnerability. We already know that all of these things have been kind of lined up uh, against her. There are people out there that are going to be dealing with the alien and they don't know what they're dealing with. And she does. She's she's lost her job. She's lost her um opportunity to do the job that she's trained for and she has the the chance to get it back but i don't think that i think that i both of those things are oh and of course she's lost her life you know she's lost her daughter she's lost the future that she had planned for herself and i think that all of those things are good pressures to set up but i think in the end here first of all i'm really glad that she doesn't explain to burke or to anybody which one of these things is important and why she's chosen to go back and second of all i I think ultimately maybe none of those things are as important as being able to look herself in the mirror as she does here I, i think that this minute is really kind of where we see the beginning of you know frightened ripley cornered by a monster and and having to fight her way out because she has no choice and we see the beginning of you know ripley who makes choices ripley who's an action movie hero yeah, I think the scene where just the moments at the mirror are pivotal for her character, where she doesn't say a word, but you can tell that she's suffered. You can tell that she doesn't know who she is anymore. And you can tell that she's completely unmoored from any reality that she knew for her just a night ago or just a couple of nights ago. And that kind of thousand yard stare that she gives herself is her kind of like grounding herself to give herself a sense of purpose again to gird herself and like get back on the it's not a phone but get on the card thing with Burke and I think I mean it's projection on my part but I imagine for her it would be vengeance having seen everyone be killed on the ship from Alien and only her and Joan survive and to know that these aliens are still out there and the fact that Boyle and Yutani and the Marines are going out there they and 
are almost certainly going to face a terrible fate. I mean, the idea that they can be killed is primal for her. Yeah, I, I think that, to me, this goes back to our, la- our discussion in the last minute about the nightmares. And um, I mentioned that, sort of offhandedly, that she can't escape them. She, they, she takes those nightmares wherever she goes. And I think that that's actually pretty good motivation to try to erase those. I think that the issue here is that maybe in her waking life, not only is her waking life dull and she's a, she's a woman out of time, but her dream life is back in the nightmare. And I think there comes a point where if you, every time you lay down and close your eyes, you have to go back there anyway. Why not go back and why not face up to it and try to erase the nightmares? And that's what I get out of this. And, and as far as the mirror scene, this, Gazing into the mirror thing, I mean, there's few things that are more cliche in a movie at this point <laughs> than somebody like really facing up to themselves in a mirror. But in this case, it goes back again. I, to me, Ripley is not herself. And I think, don't think she's seeing herself when she looks in the mirror. I think that's her issue. She's looking in the mirror and wanting to see herself and she's not. And she's got to do something about it. And I don't think we get Ripley. There's going to be multiple moments coming up, maybe even this week, definitely in the next couple of weeks where I don't feel like Ripley is being herself. I don't think she's being herself in this this conversation that she's going to have with Burke. I don't know how she could believe this guy and what he tells her. I kind of want to go, Ripley, come on. Not only did she let him talk to her the way he did, shaming her condescendingly, shaming her about her job and so on, I didn't feel like that was in character for her either. So I think that she's just she's off, and she needs to get back on track. To me, that's enough motivation, but... Not that that's not to undermine your guys' ideas either. Certainly, vengeance should be. Uh, that would be a natural motivation, uh, considering everything that she's lost. And I don't know. There, there could be a lot of reasons, but to me, the dream not being able to escape the nightmares is, is a big one for me. That moment where she's looking herself in the face in the mirror and uh, like leaving aside just for a minute what she's seeing and what she's thinking, what I'm seeing, what I'm thinking when I'm looking at her is uh, Sarah Connor in Terminator Two which is also James Cameron, I, you know, she's wearing the wife beater. She's this, you know, sweaty figure with uh, these like thin, but strong arms. Like she, she has Linda Hamilton's build in this moment. And, you know, Sigourney Weaver is much taller and much thinner in a way. But at, from what we're seeing here, like this is a very Sarah Connor shot and she's having the Sarah Connor experience of, you know, I'm uh, trying to find herself, trying to toughen up. You know, this is another character who went from being helpless and being rescued by other people and fighting for her life in a fight that she never chose to becoming just this incredible force of nature, this incredibly tough woman who did what she had to do without fear because, you know, she had somebody else to protect. And I just, I see so much parallel between them, literally just in the look, like the physical look of her in this shot. Yeah, not, and not to harp on this too much, but Sarah Connor is also a character who can't escape the nightmare. Like she has, in her case, it's knowledge of the truth of the future, but, but it's the same thing. She's motivated by trying to stop this thing that she can't escape uh, when she, when she's sleeping or when, you know, just trying to be just trying to rest and you can't rest because of the nightmare that's that's chasing you around james cameron loves his uh tough sweaty angry cornered women <laughs> he does for sure so she goes to make a, a phone call if you want to call it that a skype call or whatever video <laughs> phone call to, to burke and we get the the card we get the the function of the card it's pretty clever right i like it 
I like it, but living in the age of smartphones, it just seems really inelegant and just unintuitive. I mean, how many of these cars do you have to have on you to call any one person? <laughs> oh, yeah, you'd have to have a, a Rolodex in your, of cards in your pocket. It feels a little like when, you know, watching original episodes of Star Trek and watching Spock drop a little cube into a slot as, and listening to the tape reels were, yeah, it feels a little bit like that. How could you be more archaic than this? But I, at the time, I thought it was pretty crazy cool. I'll tell you how you can be more archaic. I mean, the the just the mechanic of it all, like this plastic thing with like the little top loading cartridge thing that slots into it and the grill in front. It looks exactly like uh, an Atari 2600 with a monitor on top of it to me. You know what? I was trying yeah. to figure out. I was thinking about Commodores. Uh, I was thinking about I could not put my put my finger on what that thing looked like. That's pretty on the nose, though. I think you got it. But then you think of a character like Burke and like, you know, is he handing out these cards to everyone that he meets or just like people he's building contacts with? And, and then you think, how many of these cards does he have on him at any given time? And just like, <laughs> God, he's, his bag must be full of these things. And they're kind of thick, too. Yeah. They're not even little thin. I'm guessing, though, also I wanted to bring this up. There's somebody behind him who I think he must have slipped a card to at some point. Because do, do you not get that? I've always had the impression that there was somebody in his bed. Right? Yeah, he, he, he little... slipped something to that person at some point. <laughs> yes. There is absolutely oh, somebody God, else behind Tasha. him. Like, well, come on. Yes, he's, no, you're right. <laughs> he's clearly naked. He is clearly using his body to block the room behind him. And mm. then he looks over his shoulder in that just sort of guilty way. That's that's not so much. It's not that he's guilty for having somebody there. It's that he's guilty for uh, like the the fact that whoever that is might be overhearing this like pretty important middle of the night business call. I mean, it's possible that he's a little guilty because he's getting a call from a woman in the middle of the night when he's already got somebody there. We don't know if it's a woman. We don't know if it's a guy. We don't know if it's three monkeys and uh, the <laughs> the beach ball from Dark Star. But somebody is definitely there in the room with him, and he's a little nervous about it. Yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, yeah, the idea. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I had a thought, but I think I lost it. I, I've got to say, I mean, having already seen like Burke and his poofy hair and his his slick uh, shirt that's the same color as his tie, that's like you know fady sky blue and all, and just kind of giving getting the impression of him as like a little weasel who'll say anything to get what he wants. Seeing him here, like like hulked up in front of the screen, just like his naked chest and shoulders, is is weird. I mean, it's like it's like the shirtless Rick Moranis scene, basically. <laughs> oh come on, Paul Reiser's a little bit more attractive than than Rick Moranis, right? I immediately think of Ghostbusters, and it's just embarrassing. <laughs> oh, come on, I mean, this, like, there's there's every connection right here. Like, d d yeah. tell me you don't expect him to say, you know, okay, you can come along, but are you the the gate? Are you the are you the key master? Are you the gatekeeper? Is I just. <laughs> I just want to point out that last week we were talking about when he comes to the door and and rings the doorbell, she does the open the door and close the door in his face, just like she did in Ghostbusters. So it's like there's all kinds of little Ghostbusters correlations going on here. So here he is. She she asks him to make her basically she asks him to make her a promise, right? Like I will, you know, she's implying <laughs> I will go. What's, what's going on? What happens? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just she's asking for a promise, and he's going to make that promise, and he's going to be like, "I give you my word." 
That's exactly what I'm getting at. I mean, this is where I'm like, Ripley, no, you know better than this. Like, just asking him to give his word on anything is of no value. I don't see how she could possibly trust him at this point. Uh, he's been so wormy and the way he was so condescending to her. I don't know. And and she says, just tell me, the plan is to wipe them out. And immediately he's like, oh, yeah, that's the plan. Well, I don't buy that for a second. He didn't even, at first, he didn't even seem to think that anything was, ah, oh, it could just be a down transmitter. We're just going to go check it out. Now he's so quick to say they have a plan. I just don't trust this. And I don't feel like Ripley should be trusting it either. And again, I, I, we're back to where I don't think that she's herself right now. And this is not the Ripley I remember from Alien. And that's not a bad thing. I think she's rightfully not herself right now. And she has to come to herself again, which is going to happen later in the film. Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, she really, she really should not be trusting him. But, you know, the Ripley that we saw in Alien... The Ripley that stood up to her crew members and said, you know, I'm not going to let you on board, even if it means you die. The Ripley that stood up to Dallas and said, you need to not trust Ash. You need to not listen to him. You need to do the, the following list of things, which if they had done any of, they might have survived the movie. Like that was a Ripley who knew her job and knew the people around her and like knew her crew and was confident, not just because she hadn't been through hell yet, but because she was, she was doing things that she was used to doing. She was, she comes across as somebody who was hired for that job for a reason. And here, you know, Burke is somebody that she's not familiar with. Like, yes, she probably shouldn't be listening to him. She probably shouldn't be trusting him. Yes, I think you're right. She's not really herself here. But I mean, she's out of her element in every possible way. She's she is literally out of her time. She's she's Rip Van Winkled her way back to reality, and nothing about the world is what she expected, up to and including the fact that she survived the alien and she's being gaslighted about it. You know, nobody believes that she was there, that it happened. Nobody believes anything she said. She might as well literally be waking up from a dream, right? Like from a bad dream that was the bad dream of everything that happened on the ship. Like, no wonder she's off her game. The thing that strikes me with the scene, too, is the fact that in the midst of her not knowing anything about this new world and her not being herself, what is Wailing Yutani's endgame? I mean, they don't really need her, do they? I mean, they know that she encountered the alien. They know that she survived. But the fact that they gaslighted her at all and, and like, still need her to consult, like, what is the point there? I We talked about this a lot last week, and I honestly think that there could be an elimination plan in place here. Like, okay, this is the one person, This is a, she's a potential whistleblower. The company really dropped the ball and cost a lot of people their lives or a handful of people their lives. They knew all about this alien. They sent a, a colony to the planet. They, they had to have known that that was risky. So here's the one person who has seen the, the, what the risk was, has, has actually encountered this alien and eh, we probably ought to send her back there and get her out of our hair because she's if it turns out something's wrong there and she's here working in our dock, maybe she's going to blow the whistle on us. So that's kind of the conclusion we came to last week. It's not explicit, but you get the idea that, you know, that's what Ash's plan was, right? Throughout Alien, it was to systematically get rid of everybody after a certain point and get back get back home with the aliens. So they're it's they're not above that. They're not above it, but I just, I find that so hard to believe. Um, they're on a space station. She's working with heavy machinery. She's in this t like tiny little box cubicle in a space that the company controls. There, there's so many ways they could take her out if they wanted to take her out. It would be so easy to arrange an accident 
or cut off her oxygen or poison her or, you know, it sure. just it seems like there are much, much easier ways to get rid of her than to put her in cryo sleep and ship her off on this project. Like, I, I do believe that in whatever way they want the institutional knowledge that she has, you know, because they want to come back with these aliens. They they want to end up with them and she knows more about them than anybody else. And they've debriefed her thoroughly, but it's it's always possible that they're just going to need her on the ground as an advisor. I'm certainly not saying that Wayland yutani isn't, you know, slimy enough to want to arrange a way to get rid of her. And, uh, you know, they come pretty close, as a matter of fact. I just, it's, Occam's Razor, to me, suggests that when they say they want her knowledge of the alien, they want her knowledge of the alien. Because if they just wanted her dead, it would be very easy to make that happen. Well, I suppose they could want both because perhaps they want her knowledge, but they certainly don't want her coming back and then telling everyone that they they knew about this alien threat and didn't pull those people off that planet either. I mean, I think there's a lot of complications here. Of course, all of this is are, all of these are questions we're not supposed to be asking while we're watching the movie. <laughs> so that's, that's a big part of it. I mean, this is, here, here we come to a point where eh, there's probably way too many possible explanations for this for us to really ever find one anyway so i i don't know i mean to me it's it seems as though there's no intention of bringing her back but you're probably right they do why not have the person there that the only person that they know of that's encountered the alien be there that's got to help them in a certain way so yeah could go either way i guess i'm going to complicate things a little bit more if the idea is to like have her die on the expedition because they want to cover this thing up who are they accountable to that that would matter? If we're talking about globalization and the idea that the Marines are absolutely their pawns in this entire enterprise, if that's the case and the, and the Marines can die, then what does it matter that people know? Yeah, I guess. I mean, so is that their intention then and going back to the planet is if, if they're not accountable even to the people that live in the colony and if they don't, if they're preservation of life is not their concern and they don't have to be accountable to anybody about that, then I guess they're just trying to save their reactors, you know, save their dollars. It could be, I don't know there. Yeah. This is where the, it's a little muddy here. The, the, the intentions of the company are a little muddy here, but you know, again, this isn't, we're not really supposed to be getting into all this in the movie. What I mean, we're in a tight close up of, of Ripley right now. We're supposed to be thinking about her, but well, what's important is that she's going back to Jurassic Park. Exactly. And we can have a movie to watch. That's all we need. And Paul Reiser's naked. <laughs> is, that, is that important? <laughs> well, it's super important to his three monkeys in a beach ball or whatever the heck. Oh, in the room. What are they into in the future? Wow. <laughs> Mores have dropped sharply in 57 years. She's been gone. <laughs> all right. I don't know. I just, I, I, I keep going back to that shot of him, like, on the screen, rubbing his eyes and kind of blinking the sleep out of his eyes. And then like his first instinct is to look behind him. Yeah. <laughs> I would so love to a, know. He's such a fidgety guy anyway, too. But yeah, the, I, yeah, ever since I very first watched this movie, I was absolutely positive. Somebody was back there. I mean, I feel like that's always the case. And every eighties yuppie guy has somebody in their bed with them, right? Like they don't go home alone, do they? So I feel like that was the kind of the cliche of the time was that that's what was always going on with those guys. I like that the lighting design on him is the same as, as it is on her. Like, 
he's he you know he's a he's a sales guy he's apparently got some clout in the company but from what little we can see of his room behind him like he's in a cubicle just like hers with that weird grid lighting falling on him just like it's falling on her when she wakes up from the nightmare it's like these are just very standard rooms and the lighting in these scenes is i think is really neat um I was looking up uh, the cinematographer, Adrian Biddle, which this was his first film as a DP, which well, is kind of incredible. It was. It, he was extremely experienced. with. He worked with Ridley Scott for 15 years, I think, making commercials. And he was the focus puller on Alien. Right. And then he went back to making commercials. I guess movies didn't really matter. Yeah. And then he came back and this was his first and suddenly he had this great career from this. But sorry. Sorry to intervene there. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, yeah, he, he worked on films like Basic Instinct 2 and The Duelists. Like, he had he had jobs. It's just this is his first DP credit, like his first solo DP credit. And the lighting in this movie, the cinematography in this movie, just the way people are, are set up on the camera is just so interesting to me. And then he went on to do... <laughs> Like really, some really bizarre things like Reign of Fire, which whatever else you might say about it, like that is a movie where the cinematography really, really matters. Um, and the Mummy movies and uh, Neil Jordan's The Butcher Boy. Uh, there's just there's a film on Louise. There's a lot of interesting things in his uh, in his resume. Um, but here, yeah, I'm just I'm obsessed with the way the way light falls on sweaty bodies because we see a lot of sweat in this movie. Um, and just a lot of like close up, uh, just the rugged topography of people's faces. And, you know, here, as we're looking in on Ripley, as she's looking in on Burke, like she's, she's so sweaty and chunks of her face are in shadow and chunks of them are like lit up brightly. And she just, she looks so haggard and it's all in the cinematography. It's all in the, like the lighting setup and the way the light reflects off of this bright room that she's in. Man, living in space is not fun if you're that sweaty at all times. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, see, I think that's inter- interesting, Tasha, that you point out that their lighting, the, the room situation is very similar and their lighting situation is similar. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but it's an ongoing debate as to whether they are during these parts of the movie, whether they are still on the space station or if they're on the planet. Oh. And I have never once thought that they were on Earth. Like in my whole life, I've always assumed they were just on the gateway station. Oh, me too. The novelization has them earthbound. Now that, yeah, to me, that doesn't mean much, (laughs) to be honest. I think that could have been an an Alan Dean Foster assumption, something that he could use to, to, you know, kind of as filler, to be honest. Like I was reading parts of it and it seemed like, okay, this is neither here nor there. Uh, But, but you get an idea that there's not as much of a disparity in class between the two of them because of this. And that could really only be, you would think if they were on earth, he would have like a nice view, an oceanside house, and she would be stuck in the small apartment. But they seem to have very similar living conditions, which to me indicates that they're probably both living on that space station. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's not even remotely interesting to me if they're, if they're back on a planet. I mean, one of the things I I like here is just sort of the assumption that she's still on Gateway and she's having to take menial jobs to earn her keep, you know, to earn her oxygen in a Mm -hmm. very, very The Expanse kind of way, you know, that she can't necessarily afford to pay to have herself shipped back to Earth or wherever it is that she wants to go. And it's just, it's so in keeping with these kind of, uh, you know, mercenary companies where you've got to, (laughs) you know, work all day to earn the the money for your tea 
the idea that she's, you know, probably getting paid in company script and just spending the whole day working to try to earn, you know, a enough enough money to pay for her like her food and her coffee and and burke's cream and uh enough oxygen to get by and maybe saving up a tiny bit of money to fly back but i just like obviously none of that is text all of it is assumption but i just think it's a much more interesting assumption than she went home and she decided to keep on working for the company for some reason i'm really fascinated by her ability to like create this dystopia around this film because you would think that her being in hypersleep after having encountered this horror, they would give her some kind of pension, you know? But just the idea that she's out in space in the midst of this monopoly that doesn't care about really anyone, and she just has to kind of live up until this opportunity comes her way, is terrible, but also really compelling. I mean, looked at it another way, she owes them $42 million. That's exactly what I was about <laughs> to say. <laughs> yeah, she's still, in, she's still, like, her paychecks are being docked every day. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, too, that it's more interesting to me to think that Ripley's married to the sea and, and being earthbound is not of any interest to her. Like, she's a space so far. We've never seen her. We've never seen Ripley, right? We've never seen her actually set foot on a planet yet still. So she's either been inside a ship or in space inside a ship. And I like that idea that the, she's, a, she's a spacefarer. She's not an earthbound person. And especially considering the fact she has nothing on Earth to go back to. Why even bother? Like, why not just stay there on Gateway Station and maybe in the back of her mind, she's waiting out another opportunity. I mean, she really perks up at the idea of getting her flight status back, right? When he mentions it to her. And then it's immediately disappointed when she realized that that means she has to go back to get it. But I like the idea. She's a sailor. She just wants to stay in orbit. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, she seems to be adapted for the environment. And, uh, you know, we don't really know anything about what Earth is like. Really, what we don't know anything about what Earth is like as of Alien, let alone 57 years later, given Wayland yutanis attitude towards uh, <laughs> its indifference towards human life. I just kind of assume, you know, a polluted, overcrowded, overpopulated, miserable Earth. <laughs> as Kwame said, like, we're, we're, we're building up a dystopia that's necessarily even like darker and uglier than the dystopia that we're actually seeing on on screen right. and i guess that's just you know a long library of science fiction i mean is that is that just me I, you know is is that impulse to make things worse than they actually are just a, an instinct because of the kind of science fiction i read or do you guys feel it as well no i i feel it, it star trek is my only reprieve from that really like to me if I'm watching Star Trek, I'm full Roddenberry, optimistic and happy to be there. And in every other way, any kind of futurism is always the darkest possible timeline. <laughs> so that, that I'm with you. I'm 100% on that. And that's I think that's where I, why our conversation is going down this rabbit hole. Yeah, the same with me. I mean, there's nothing in the text that really indicate that there's anything utopian about this reality that they're actually living in. I mean, we, we haven't actually encountered any kind of alien life that's intelligent. The xenomorphs are all just kind of bloodthirsty and quote unquote evil, and Whaling Yutani is probably just as evil. So, yeah, I think it's an easy assumption to make. I think it would be pretty funny. Like I, I remember Alien. I've I've seen Alien so many times. I've seen Aliens so many times. I remember Alien Three reasonably well. My memory of Alien Four is pretty much Ripley looking out of the window with the hybrid. 
and that's it. Like for all I remember, Alien Four could have like an hour of her like picnicking in the middle of Yosemite with the sun shining down and there's just all this stuff about Earth in that film that I don't remember and it would be pretty funny if that was true um, but failing that I just there's there's so much darkness and misery in these films and you know even in the modern day ones uh, Prometheus and Covenant mostly you just get a sense of people getting on ships and heading out from Earth in an attempt to be anywhere else I don't know yeah you get the idea of Covenant definitely puts it in, in pretty stark relief that there's Earth is not very habitable, right? Don't they kind of get into those ideas that they need to go colonize? And uh, they're destroying themselves, I believe David says. The, the people are destroying their, themselves in their home and so on. So I think one, the further you get down the line in this series, the more the dystopia becomes actually part of the text where we're in the middle of an action-adventure movie that's not really giving that to us, and we're just reading it in. It could be. I mean, I mentioned that earlier, I, sometime in minute six or seven or so, that I had that feeling where I, I was my understanding of these early films, Alien and Aliens, is starting to become a little muddy because of all this information we're getting from the other films. I, I couldn't remember whether Wayland yutani should know about the alien or not in the inquest and so on. Like, surely they do, because I, these other movies have shown me that there's lots of evidence that this stuff is going on. But, yeah, it's all getting a little muddy as we go along here, that's for sure. Well, she's about to go unmuddy it up by kicking its butt. I mean, I really like your uh, Married to the Sea theory, because if that's true... She really doesn't have a choice here. And it's not because of her job. It's not because of the colonists. It's not because of anything else. It's because if she's if she's afraid to go out into the sea, like, who is she? You know, at this point, she's got to be Ahab going after the white whale because otherwise she's afraid to set foot on a boat because it might be out there somewhere. So this is her reclaiming her natural habitat. Yeah, if only she had a copy of Moby Dick sitting next to her bed. Right, like right in the frame, we would have this right there in the text. It'd be just like, <laughs> just like Khan in the Khan with all of his Dante and everything. We would just know. But that no, I don't. A horrible suggestion. No, what I'm is not. wrong with you? That's exactly why I made it. I'm that saying is, that is literally that is so much worse than me making up like a dystopian life on Earth. Oh, you're getting me wrong. I'm being sarcastic. I'm oh, saying. I understand. That, um... it's just, <laughs> okay. You're you're fan. I'm fantasizing about Ripley li living in a world that's worse than the world <laughs> she necessarily lives in. You're fantasizing about this being a worse movie. Uh, yes. Occasionally, <laughs> I will do that. That's for sure. Sometimes, sometimes I stab you... at the exactly. Too. That's exactly <laughs> what I was. Th I've been thinking too much about Wrath of Khan lately. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's possible that any thinking about Wrath of Khan is too much thinking about Wrath of Khan. Oh, oh wow. Okay. I do not know what to say to that. <laughs> maybe, well, this should be, maybe we should talk off mic about this one. I didn't realize I was coming to the humming minute. This is pretty good listening to you guys just <laughs> hum disapprovingly <laughs> at me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, maybe on that note, we should move on to minute number 18. Uh, do you guys have anything else for 17? <laughs> no, I'm just going to sit here and hum. No, I'm all right. Hmm. <laughs> should we talk more? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> all right, well, <laughs> Kwame, do you want to uh, tell us where the people can find you on the internet again? Yes, you can find me at theverge.com. You can also follow me at Twitter at Kwame Opom. And Tasha? 
Uh, you can find me writing about film and, t- and TV and humming to myself at theverge.com. Mm. <laughs> you can find me writing about books over at NPR Books. Uh, you can find me talking about film at the Next Picture Show podcast. And you can find me just vending my humming thoughts on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Yeah, you could probably find some Rathcon hot takes over there on her Twitter if you scroll down far enough, I imagine. Anyway, um, you can find us at AlienMinute.com or on uh, Twitter at AlienMinutePod. We're on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. Uh, we also have a T uh, public page with some designs. You want to go over and get a T-shirt, a sticker, or something like that. Uh, there's also a virtual tip jar. If you ever want to drop a buck in there, help me with some expenses over here at the podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. All right. Well, thank you very much for tuning in for Minute Number 17. We'll see you tomorrow for Number 18.